Hello, and welcome to the Making Sense of Science podcast. In this episode, my guest is Nenea Reeves, the CEO of TRIP, an app for mental wellness with two big differences from a lot of meditation apps you've probably heard of, like Calm and Headspace. First, TRIP experiences happen in virtual reality, with stunningly beautiful visuals and sounds. Second, TRIP isn't just a relaxation app. It strives to hack mindfulness and give users feelings of awe and wonder and even mystical experiences. The CEO, Nenea, brings over 15 years of leadership in digital distribution, apps, and video game technologies. Before co-founding Trip, she had several other executive and leadership roles in tech with leading companies like Text Plus and Machinima. She's also faced incredible adversity in her personal life. We get into that and much more in this episode. We talk about her loved ones' substance addictions and her own battle with mental illness when she was a teen, which led to her first experiences with meditation. We talk about how technology is often seen as a driver of mental health problems, but how tech can increase well-being when it's designed right. We get into emerging ways of measuring your meditation experiences by recording brainwaves and the problems with the measured self-movement. We discuss how TRIP's users multiplied during the stress and anxiety of the pandemic, and the ways that TRIP's meditation and mystical experiences have been informed by groundbreaking research from psychologists like Johns Hopkins' Matthew Johnson. And of course, because the topic is mental health and tech, I had to get her thoughts on Elon Musk, Neuralink, and brain-machine interfaces. My conversation with Nenea coincides with National Brain Awareness Week. The topic is a little different from this podcast's usual focus on breakthroughs in treating and preventing disease, but there's a big overlap when it comes to breakthroughs in optimal health. Nenea's work is at the leading edge of health, technology, and the science of wellness. With TRIP, you might find yourself deep underwater, looking at the sunlight shimmering on the ocean's surface, or up in the cosmos, staring down at a planet glowing with a diversity of colors or in some other realm that bears little resemblance to our own. I've used TRIP in virtual reality for the past six months and found it to be a fascinating experience, as was my conversation with Nenea. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Nenea. It's fantastic to be talking with you again. I enjoyed our previous discussion so much that I definitely wanted to follow up with you for this podcast episode. I think I told you last time, using Trip on my VR headset has been a really fascinating tech experience for me, like a breakthrough, okay, this is what's possible moment, Uh, possibly as game-changing as the life-changing experience of getting my first Nintendo when I was nine. Uh, So thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. I feel like we should be having this conversation in virtual reality, in space, looking down at a planet. But I'm uh, more than happy to settle for video conferencing. Um, So I want to start on a serious note, a personal note. I believe that you experienced very trying circumstances when you were younger, when you were a teenager that led you to trying meditation for the first time. And I wondered if you could talk about the adversity that you went through and how meditation helped you. Yeah, I'm actually happy to. For a a long period in my life, I I never spoke about this. And, you know, I think one of the great benefits of the stigma around mental health changing in our society, it allows us to 
share experiences that could be helpful to others who might be, you know, deep in the throes of dealing with some of the challenges that we all face and only until recently, I believe, feel comfortable speaking about it. And, you know, my um, family has suffered with addiction specifically and alcoholism, multi-generational. And my mother was a heroin addict. I was the eldest of three girls. And uh, she also, I believe, suffered from mental health issues. And and perhaps even her drug use was an attempt to self-medicate some of her mental health issues. And, you know, when I choose to look at it that way, I can have, um, you know, I can have a lot more compassion for her and her journey. But as a kid, of course, me and my, my sisters were very much at effect, um, you know, were negatively impacted by her addiction and the lifestyle that it, um, uh, <laughs> you know, that we all experienced as a result. And, you know, for me, it was uh, when I was a, a teenager, I kind of hit a wall with it. It had just piled up so much so that I had a mental health episode. It was more like a, a, just a break in my um, uh, sense of reality, my sense of safety, and I ended up in the hospital. And fortunately, I met a, a woman who was assigned to work with me as a therapist upon release and, um, from the hospital. And she taught me how to meditate. And I must have been about 15 or 16 at the time. And, you know, back then it was long before these meditation apps. I sometimes call them cheekily Mick mindfulness apps, but they've done a wonderful, wonderful um, job at lowering the barrier to entry. At that time, though, I was embarrassed to tell my friends that I meditated, but it was a real gift for me. It really, I believe, helped me insert the ability to pause before I reacted. And prior to that, a lot of my reactions were very um, much fueled by anger and uh, they were expressed in very self-destructive behavior. That's that's fascinating. Um, I, I, I think that that is one of the big benefits that I've seen from meditation too, is the ability to pause before I react and um, yeah, I want to get into some of the ways that people can use TRIP to either supplement or maybe um, replace closed eyes meditation. Obviously, with virtual reality meditation, the eyes are open. But before we get into your work with TRIP, I uh, believe that you've talked publicly about this in the past as well. But I hoped that you could share for our audience, if you're willing, some insights related to your more recent losses of loved ones uh, and how that may have inspired you to do some of the important work that you're doing today. Well, you know, just going back to that, you know, process of inserting a pause before reaction, you start to uh, rewire your decision framework. And it really starts with just being self-aware, being able to look at the nature of your mind and, and, and the thought stream 
that is resulting from it. A lot of us are in, you know, this kind of mode of looking at how the world's impacting us and not really seeing how we're impacting the world around us or even just how we're impacting ourselves. And so for me, I started to see that, you know, I could use my mindfulness practice in ways that help me make better choices in my life. And my sister, Vicky, who's two years younger than me, she, um, she was almost like the alternate reality version of my life had I not made some of the changes that I did. And, and it was like watching a movie play out had I not uh, gotten help. And, you know, so in um, 2000, I think, yeah, it's been 10 years, 2012, she passed away from a drug overdose. And it was really the saddest day of my life, uh, you know, because there's that sibling relationship is a deep bond. They're the witness of your journey, you know, from the same vantage point. And I'd even spoken to her the night before and, um, you know, and I always knew I was going to get that call. But when you receive it, it's just such a, a blow that, you know, no one really tells you that they say time heals all wounds. And I don't know that the wound is any different than it was that day I got that call that she was gone. It's just there's more space in between. And, um, you know, and that really uh, also gave me a deep sense of gratitude for the path that I've taken in my life because I know that I could, I was definitely on the same journey that she had. And, um, but for the kindness and compassion of that woman and her ability to just see that I was definitely responding to what she was teaching me to do. I, mean, I think it made a huge difference in my life. And, you know, and because of I was making a lot of a lot better decisions, I've had a great career in the games industry. And I married an amazing man who had a meditation practice that was Tibetan based. Uh, and, you know, Tibetans meditate with their eyes open. And it, um, if you look at even the statues of the Buddha, the eyes are open. Uh, it's about, you know, bringing your awareness present. I think a lot of us in the West, we start off with this goal of treating meditation more like a chill pill. <laughs> and, um, uh, but, uh, you know, my, my husband was an amazing person. And in 2015, he passed away very suddenly from cancer. We were told that he had nine months to live, and he was gone within within eight weeks, uh, and uh, it, it was very fast. And you know, but he left very peacefully and very focused uh, on how to have a a journey out of this realm uh, that was you know connected and we were all with him, you know, during those last months with joy and our meditation practice really helped us deal with a, a very challenging and uh, uh, life issue that many people are going to have to go through that experience of losing someone you love to illness or even suddenly like with my sister and how do we navigate it? And it was in that, um, in that space afterwards, while I was dealing with grief and emerging from it, that 
I ask myself the question, you know, what what is my contribution? What do I want to build? And Shrip was the idea that uh, emerged from that process. That, that's that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, it seems like your meditation really shifted your mindset from a passive stance. Uh, the world was sort of acting on you to an active stance, uh, sort of a mental frame in which you were acting on the world and you could see how um, your perspective translated into um, being able to maybe harness those obviously tragic events. I mean, it's amazing what you've done with those experiences. Uh, You know, I have no doubt that, um, you know, your husband and your sister, uh, you know, watching somewhere incredibly proud of what you've accomplished and how many people you're helping through trip. But I wanted to follow up on the Tibetan eyes open practice, uh, because it is, you know, sort of the de facto way that one must do virtual reality meditation. More people in the West, as I think you referred to, are familiar with the closed eyes meditation. Uh, but virtual reality has to involve the eyes being open. What would you say are the advantages? Uh, are there advantages to eyes open meditation, I guess, whether in virtual reality or, or not versus closed eyes meditation? I believe so. And that, well, I mean, there's advantages to both. Any time that you can sit still and connect to yourself and, and really just get into a state of self-acceptance, you know, we're all so manipulated by whether it's advertisers or our social feeds or even just our own internal dialogue to get on this hamster wheel of self-improvement, which implies inherently that we are not okay the way that we are currently in this moment. And, you know, to just really drop into connecting to self, if you need to close your eyes to do that, you know, there's no right way or wrong way. Um, But ultimately, if you do have a meditation practice that you can spend time just opening your eyes for a minute or two in the practice to be fully present in this moment with the um, input of, of sight, you know, gentle gaze, just resting in space and and really having a sense of uh, where you're at in this moment, it uh, can really, I think, be a game changer when you're in a stressful situation where you can't just like close your eyes and and get into your hands into some kind of yogic mudra position, you know, that you can just really drop in and go, how am I feeling? What is my state of mind in this moment? I can tell you, like, when we were at the doctor's office and the doctor was giving my husband and I his terminal status, you know, really to be present for that so that we were, you know, receiving that information in a way that wasn't, you know, with total despair or emotionally sort of charged or latching onto the fear to just kind of really be in that moment and hear what our options were and check in with 
how we were feeling in that moment individually and almost energetically with each other, um, it really can help you uh, navigate not only challenges, but I have found like even just being able to drop into that, you know, during my business life, you know, when I'm dealing with employees or even partners and potential um, negotiations to just, you know, stop and feel what what is happening in the room right now? What does this person in front of me really need in this moment? How is that in alignment with myself? I mean, those are the things that just being in the moment, mindfully aware can, I think, impact our happiness levels, our success levels in life, whatever your definition of success is, can often change um, just based on that awareness being present. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder if there's a certain habit that one cultivates to being capable of being in the moment with the eyes open. Since so many stressful things that happen to us happen when our eyes are open. Uh, it sort of makes intuitive sense to yeah. practice meditation with the eyes open sometimes. It's a muscle, Matt, just like, uh, you know, you, you in, when you need great moments of physical strength, there is a, um, a practice that you need to do regularly to be able to show up for that moment. And I think it's the same with with training our minds. You know, when I was in Tibet and I was taught um, what is now, you know, I know to be a Zogchen meditation practice with my eyes open, it, it's a muscle that uh, I was developing. And they don't call it meditation there. The translation is training the mind. When I, it was like a light bulb that went off in my head when I heard that because it's, you know, I think somehow I, early on, even in that therapist's office, I was looking at it more like this uh, with more of a medicinal approach, do you know? Can it um, uh, calm me down? Can it quiet my mind? And maybe I had this misunderstanding that the goal of meditation was to stop thinking and where I found in my Zogchen practice that the acceptance of the current state of my mind and being able to look at it was really the practice, to just look at it. So when I start meditating, I think um, uh, my first thought is just to look at what kind of state of mind am I bringing to this moment? And that's kind of sort of the beginning of it. And it's also about self-acceptance not judging it, but just looking, oh, it's alert or it's tired. And I can just honor that for a moment and sit with that, do you know? And so it's really the act of looking uh, at it internally in that internal space is uh, really important. So tools like TRIP, especially the container of virtual reality, has the ability to really capture your awareness and in some of the earlier experiences, you know, of um, like, you know, th that are designed to really scare the pants off of you, um, it, it, that inspired me to think, well, if we can generate so much fear with a simulated environment, could we create something that could trigger awe and wonder and capture your awareness no matter what state of mind you're in, in that container of VR? And that was, that was kind of the foundational thinking for how we uh, 
uh, approach the design of our experiences. Yeah, and I want to ask you about the design because there's such incredible artistry that goes into the design, um, including both musical and visual elements. But before we get into that, I wondered if you could talk anecdotally about some of your customers' experiences with Trip. Are there any user experiences that stand out to you, people who were really having a tough time, maybe with isolation during the pandemic or some other stressor and how Trip has helped them during those tough times? Absolutely. And I can tell you that, you know, being a startup founder and and also the whole team, we were a very small team for a long time. And, uh, you know, you're just, you have a kernel of an idea of creating these immersive environments that might be supportive in nature. And you start to experiment, you build and you show it to people and try to get people to use it even before you launch. And so one of our early deployments as a team was to go into enterprise as a mindful break activity. And we got, we're able to get some early companies to bring us in and and the employees really enjoyed it and we were starting to get feedback. And then before we even launched on the Oculus App Store, we were out at a um, an event that Omron and uh, Amazon were hosting at a mall and we had set up, you know, a VR meditation lounge at this fair that they were doing in Los Angeles. And we met this man named Phil who um, uh, was in remission from cancer. And he just really connected to Trip. And he said, I have to buy this device. And I said, well, we're not actually live yet. <laughs> you know, we're still building it. And But we gave him the device and we said, look, we're getting ready to go live. And would you be one of our first home testers. And we had another man in Hawaii, uh, where I'm from, who was also using it, both elderly, because we also, well, Phil wasn't elderly, but he was in some compromised health. And Ron, our our um, customer, our, our first home user in Hawaii, was uh, elderly and also dealing with some uh, cancer and so we really wanted to see how someone in different states of health would feel using our experience. It was very early version of our product. And both were so uh, uh, active and really expressive of how much it was helping them. And, you know, it just it meant so much to us that both used our product for over a year while um, even before we launched and throughout up until the end of their lives. And, um, uh, you know, there were days where we would come in since they were our only two users, you know, doing it at home outside of corporations. We would come in and see their data and then we would notice when they would stop using it. We could almost see like their failing health in the usage. And then we'd see them come back online and, you know, get really excited that they were, you know, back. And, um, but those kind of things really motivated us as a team to keep going. It's really hard to um, be an entrepreneur at times, you know, you have this idea and not 
everyone gets it or they're not supportive of it. And it was those type of user experiences that um, uh, we, uh, you know, were really motivated by as a team. And Phil sent us a, a he gave us a video because we had given him the Oculus Go device when we first launched it and he was nearing the end of his life and he, he actually allowed us to um, use it uh, we have it on YouTube and I look back at that sometimes when I'm feeling like I just can't keep going <laughs> you know I can watch that video and I find it really personally motivating as the CEO of this company. Well, it must have been incredibly reinforcing when you uh, had users in those early days who were suffering and you're clearly making a difference in their lives. Um, fast forward today, uh, where you're when you're able to reach um, many more people and you've really done a great job of expanding your audience and um, the number of users for Trip, I know, has increased significantly in recent years. Can you talk about how the pandemic has driven interest in meditation, broadly speaking, uh, from your perspective, but also specifically in virtual reality meditation? It'd be great if you could talk about how you've seen the number of people using Trip grow during the pandemic. I can only uh, speak about our, the adoption of our product because I don't have visibility into the other. Um, but, you know, we can assume that, you know, you could expand it into other apps, etc. cetera. Uh, what we saw with Trip at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, we started to see a wave of increase in usage and and the feedback and the nature of the feedback that we were getting from our users started to change from, wow, this is really cool what you've built and I really like it to, this is helping me massively manage the stress and not only for me, but my entire family. And that, again, was very motivating to us um, the other thing that's wonderful about being on the gaming platforms early on in our journey was gamers are the greatest. They can be very loud and direct, and they will tell you when they really hate something that you did. And so having them actively using our product and in constant communication with us, even just bad reviews, and we would respond to them with, feature updates and they would notice it and feel heard. And in many ways, our community has uh, helped us build a better product. During the pandemic, it really uh, was very motivating because we felt a sense of purpose and a mission to support people, people during a very stressful time, not only for the world as a whole, but even for our company. You know, we were... Um, uh, VR in general was, um, you know, it, 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 it was slow to start it, its growth period. And we've really seen, I think, over the last 24 months especially, and maybe it was influenced by the pandemic or not, but the industry as a whole has seen tremendous growth. And uh, VR adoption, not only just being a gamer-focused technology, but we definitely 
see uh, a more balanced gender view right now in our audience, as well as we do have anecdotal um, data from our users that there's whole house usage of these VR devices. Still a shared device. Uh, not everybody has their own VR device yet, and not everyone's walking around with them in their pockets all day long like we do with our <laughs> our mobile phones, right? One thing that helps with uh, getting a spouse or a partner to get their own headset is exercise a lot with your VR headset. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's worked with my wife. I think she's on the market for a headset because I've gotten ours uh, sweaty enough that she is um, utterly uninterested in using my hands. <laughs> well, I, you need I, to get the rubber uh, yes. uh, gasket. For I, sure. I, I've looked into that too late. I think that I, she's <laughs> traumatized and uh, already uh, on the market for her own headset. I think a lot of people say uh, have, have been saying you know, virtual reality. And it's all it's all hype. People have been talking about virtual reality forever. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And people are still saying that. And my reaction now is, no, it, it's here. <laughs> the, the, the moment for VR, in my opinion, at least, mm-hmm. has arrived because I, I think that the technology has got to a point where the experiences you can have in virtual reality are really amazing. And I think that the pandemic, um, you know, if there was a silver lining in the pandemic, uh, I think one of them was that more and more people have looked into virtual reality and the opportunities for improving their well-being uh, during a time when they were isolated and really, really needed it. We think of it Right now, virtual reality, augmented reality, and mobile, they're all very discrete device profiles. But I really do think there'll be a confluence where you'll have one device with different layers of um, augmentation all the way to full immersion. And that's just on the horizon, and I'm very excited about that. And... um, But if you think about like the early days of mobile, I had a Nokia flip phone, actually I had a Motorola Razor as well, uh, and a Nokia, uh, uh, you know, a Nintendo Game Boy, a uh, Canon camera, a Sony Walkman or an iPod and uh, to play my music. And, you know, we've seen that all converge into one device. I think the same thing will happen as computing moves from the hand to the head, there'll be a confluence of um, all of these discrete interfaces coming together as one. So I'm very excited about TRIP's expansion into mobile AR, and then ultimately how we will layer on AR glasses and how that will be interoperable with our VR experiences as well. Yeah, I think that could be an opportunity for different gateways into virtual reality. If people have Mm -hmm. the devices they already have are compatible to a greater extent with the VR headset, I think that can only increase adoption. And you mentioned the gamer crowd. So I have to ask, I mean, one thing I find really interesting about VR meditation is how it could open the door to more men becoming meditators. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but statistically, I think it's true that fewer men meditate overall than women, but other demographic data shows that more men use virtual reality than women. Uh, Do you think that one perhaps unintended result of the growing use 
of VR meditation could be that more men are sort of recruited into starting a meditation practice. And I say that in the context of your user demographics that show that TRIPS users are 57% male, I, I believe. Correct. And and when we first started, it was much higher. So we definitely are seeing more women, like your wife, yeah. <laughs> using VR, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, one thing with trip, we try not to just think about the trip uh, catalog or offering as meditation only. Um, in many ways, it's not. It's they're virtual environments that are designed to support you, make you feel present, make you feel more relaxed or connected to yourself, and. Uh, and then, you know, maybe that might plant a seed where you can carry that into your physical reality and perhaps even get a, an expanded meditation practice outside of the VR app. We don't want to replace meditation, but we have seen a good portion of our user base have never really connected to any kind of mindfulness practice until they've used TRIP. And and, and, you know, with men, there's a lot of research around the stigma they struggle with when asking for help with emotional um, well-being and, and mental health struggles. And during the pandemic, whether you had a mental health diagnosis or not, we were all struggling, right? It was an unexpected shift in our day-to-day -day lives that impacted the entire world. And everyone was dealing with certain stressors, even if it's just like how to deal with uh, remote work and, and children not going to school, you know, in the household. And, and so I think that uh, this is something I, I am really proud of our team for being able to create experiences that men felt um, that they could feel comfortable in connecting to self. Maybe that's the container of VR, providing some safety uh, psychologically to just allow ourselves to let go and drop all the things we hold on to. And I think there's some interesting things when you think about the metaverse and virtual communities where people can talk very openly about different subjects that maybe in real life in a group of, of people where they're seen and they're, um, uh, you know, they're, people are able to read your body language, etc. You might not be as expressive about how you're feeling. And, um, you know, Trip recently acquired a very wonderful online virtual community called Evolver that has been doing live group meditations in VR for several years. They also saw big growth in uh, during the pandemic of people coming to their, they have, you know, sometimes three to four meditations per day, up to 30 per week uh, with live facilitators. You know, a few hundred people can show up at any given time in these virtual worlds. And one of the most meaningful group sessions that they have is on the topic of, of death and dying. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a, a 
subject that many people are very uncomfortable speaking of. And in virtual reality, they were finding very open discussions happening. It's one of their most popular weekly sessions. And I think it's an interesting use of this layer of abstraction where maybe we feel a little more anonymous, where, you know, that can also be used to drive a lot of toxic behavior, but it can also, um, I think, be harnessed in ways that can help people talk about things that, Mm -hmm. you know, they might not be as comfortable talking about in front of humans. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that makes me wonder what your reaction is to people who say the technology is a driver of a, a lot of mental health problems, like the narrative that says, you know, we're all addicted to our phones, our retweets and Minecraft or whatever else. And so tech isn't the solution. What we really need is someone to pry our gadgets from our hands and go offline, march off into a, a nature retreat. Clearly, you've seen how technology can be used to help people. Um, so I'm curious what your response is to that, that whole narrative. Well, there's some truth to that narrative. And, uh, and a lot of it is driven by consumerism, right? And how do we turn people viewing at these screens into consumers? And, you know, there's a basic principle that if I feel badly about something about myself, I'm, I might be motivated to buy something to fix it, right? And so, you know, algorithms, et cetera, can really drive sentiment that might not always be positive. I looked at that in that, you know, in that space that I spoke about earlier about what do I want to do as I look at rebuilding my life after my husband died was, you know, how do we take some of those basic building blocks that have built the internet in its current state and approach it with the mindset of using tech for good. And I have found, and I, you know, a while ago I spoke very publicly about some of the benefits that I received as a female playing video games. There was um, a, a sense of control over my environment, especially when I felt like the world was falling apart around me. I could go into a video game and see myself as a hero. You see a lot of young women now going into computer science tracks in universities, and they were playing Minecraft as kids. And so just from an interest in technology, you know, it organically stemmed from uh, me interacting with video games. and, And it's also important for young women or young girls even, to see themselves as builders and makers really early on. And I think a lot of the narrative around video games in general is to focus on the violence or the shooter aspects. And, you know, there have been a lot of studies trying to tie that back to real-world violence. And, you know, it's it's uh, the correlation is not as strong. But the benefits of improving spatial reasoning skills uh, and interest in STEM, a lot of the tools in these games like Roblox and Minecraft really do look like software tools. And you can even get uh, exposure or access to code level interactions. And 
So I think there, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, different narratives that you can kind of narrow in on. And, um, uh, but yes, I think first and foremost, if we can get our minds present, we can also be more aware of how we're being manipulated. And I think that's really important. And so if technology can be used to help you with that, or you can unplug and sit and and, and plug into a, a meditation practice without the use of technology, it's really about being aware of what's happening in in you know in front of you in this moment and also your reaction and responses to things internally uh, based on, you know, uh, I, I look at it as a way to empower people more. And um, yeah, I do think that there needs to be a growing contingency of conscious companies that are trying to create a better version of technology interactions. And uh, so that was really one of the principles with with the foundation for how we were approaching building TRIP. And then also what I'd like to call the mindful metaverse, as it starts scaling out, like, you know, there's a place for these toxic expressions as well. They're never going to go away. How do we protect the vulnerable from them? How do we build resiliency so we know how we're being manipulated? How do we you know, support ourselves with the um, more beneficial environments that work for us. This is, I think, um, uh, where we're at as an industry and as a society. You know, there has to be more transparency and and awareness on on what's happening with tech in general and how our feeds are being organized, how our data is being collected and sold and brokered behind the scenes. Uh, we should have transparency on it. We have been, we are the product uh, of a lot of companies' revenue streams and we're not participating in any of the monetization of our own data. And uh, in many ways that kind of turns us into slaves to these algorithms, right? Yeah. No, I, I uh, there's some really interesting problems to be solved. And clearly tech is not inherently toxic, it can be designed with noble intentions. And there are a lot of interesting issues of compatibility between virtual reality and other technologies. And uh, like, of course, any podcast host, whenever I have the opportunity, I have to try to loop Elon Musk into the conversation. So uh, I'm curious <laughs> um, if you have opinions to share about uh, their health-related technologies that maybe we haven't talked about yet, like brain-machine interfaces. There's been a lot of excitement or freaking out, depending on who you talk <laughs> with, over Elon Musk's Neuralink, for example. Are, are you scared or looking forward to the prospect of BMI technologies coming to the fruition at some point in the future? And do you see any intersection with virtual reality, virtual reality meditation, like maybe BMIs could introduce some objective feedback to the user to see what effect trip is having on them? Yes, all of that. Afraid and <laughs> excited. And uh, uh, so we do experiment with brain computing interfaces uh, as it relates to 
EEG data coming in, uh, looking at, in our research at pupil measurement is a, 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 a good response just to see are we directionally, uh, you know, our experiences, are they directionally targeting the kind of responses that we hope they will. Um, but any kind of biometric data collection at, at, at the consumer level needs to be done with great care. We haven't deployed anything live. Uh, it's only in our research because, you know, there's just, even with the best intentions, you want to be very cautious and mindful. And in our philosophy at TRIP is when we approach those kinds of interfaces is how do we use that data for the benefit of the user and they have full transparency of it, you know, that, and they have the ability to opt out of it and they own their data. And that is um, how we're looking at future um, uh, states but I think it, for us right now, it's more in the area of research and potential um, more therapeutic targeted experiences that could be used in the um, more clinical environments where you can have the appropriate kind of data governance and, and regulation around uh, collecting that kind of data. I think we should proceed with caution. That is... Uh, even with the best intentions, people are going to make terrible mistakes in these areas. Yeah, I think along the lines of people owning their own data, I've seen the proposal, as I'm sure you have. I think I recently heard mentioned by Lex Friedman. He's a podcast host, an AI researcher at MIT, and others that other uh, thinkers in this area that all people should have the right to delete their online health information at any time, like when, whenever they're detecting any type of ethical concern or any uh, area where they're not comfortable with, they just kind of can go online and press delete and it's not there anymore. But it shouldn't just be health data because you can infer health status by even your shopping behavior. And you can also look at it from your geolocation data by time spent outside and activity levels. And so this, is, this, has to, this concept has to be applied to all data because the sophistication of how you can use different data sets to relate to health and mental well-being, et cetera, uh, you know, it's, it's already there today. And it ha is being harnessed, you know, you could say to benefit us or against us or to manipulate us. And, um, uh, you know, Jeremy Balenson's lab out of Stanford, he's been working in virtual reality uh, research for many years. And they were able to identify with just head tracking and movement data, a digital fingerprint that was fairly accurate. And it could be uh, um, produced in a matter of seconds in your VR movement behavior. And, you know, so this kind of, it, this becomes, a, a, you know, there are all kinds of ways to violate a user's privacy and capture identity in today's world. And, and we need to be very conscientious about that. It's an important point. And as users, the more we know, 
the more we can protect ourselves, right? Yeah. We can delete our data. We can demand transparency. Uh, and uh, it's really important that we do that. That's a really important point. I'm glad you made it. I think it's funny, you know, how often I see this concern voiced in terms of people not wanting their bosses to read their minds. <laughs> people thinking like that, you know, they, they secretly don't like their bosses uh, and they don't want their bosses to to know that. Uh, I guess you're your own boss. So you- a deep meditation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A deep meditation yeah. practice can help you with that too. You'll love your boss. You know, yeah. Just being aware and you can go, yeah, that person is very stressed out right now when I walked in the room. Exactly. Right? <laughs> How yeah. have you used research from people like Johns Hopkins researcher Matthew Johnson for TRIP? Uh, because far from just relaxation, I think there's a sense of connection to the universe that people get from using TRIP. It's a very profound experience. I know from my experience that it really does inspire great feelings of awe and wonder. So I'm curious how you made the choice to bring an emphasis to these um, sort of mystical experiences that people can have. It's been so much fun to work with as a a technologist and, uh, you know, as a team. And early on, we started prototyping exactly what you would think meditation in VR would be. Uh, Let's put you on a beach and we'll have a guided voice maybe with a Celtic accent, tell you to inhale and exhale, right? And so we did a quick prototype of that. And I didn't, you know, we were all sitting there thinking, why doesn't this feel right? And, you know, our brain has a frame of reference for what a beach should smell like and how it should feel on our skin as we sit on a beach. Uh, And in a virtual environment, that's missing those senses and that tactile interaction, your brain kind of went, hmm, this is weird. What's going, there's something wrong here. And it um, it just made us step back and go, well, let's, let's focus on creating environments you don't have a frame of reference for. And that allowed us to lean into you know, why should we tell someone to inhale when we can show their breath as cosmic particles coming in and out of their mouth, you know, and do that at a pace or or we can make them feel like they're floating up to another dimension while their mind knows I'm sitting in my chair, but I feel like I'm floating in space like that in and of itself can trigger awe and wonder. And there's a researcher who's been working in VR specifically on how to create awe and wonder, Giuseppe Riva, and he even has a scale on how to measure awe. I I was reading that research and I got the chance to meet him and his team very early on and see some of the things they were building and share early um, view of TRIP, of early version of it. And, you know, it was very inspirational to take some of their academic focus to these states and then Take our, you know, I mean, we, we're very experienced developers from the video game industry and, and know how to create environments and, and apply it to that. And then, you know, some of the work Matthew Johnson has done at Johns Hopkins and, and other teams where, you know, they, when they focus on psychedelics and how 
they believe that one of the reasons why they have such a profound effect on mental health is a perceived connection to the mystical experience. And, and he even has a scale that they use to measure that. We have a study um, going on right now at the University of Colorado with students and their mental health where we're using that same scale, but obviously not uh, in the context of psychedelics, but in uh, connection to how does trip rate on that perceived connection to a mystical experience. And it's not from a um, religious standpoint. It's just when we feel... I know when I've been in states of um, depression, it is a feeling of isolation. It's a feeling of, of being disconnected, even from my own life. And uh, uh, so when I can feel connected to something bigger as a whole or even the community, the global community, it uh, it has a uh, positive lift in my state of being. And um, the, so those were kind of the approaches that we looked at research and then how do we translate that into a design you know uh uh so can we put you in a cosmic flotation tank and uh, whatever that might look like and experiment with it and can we try to trigger the overview effect looking down at the planet or even showing the concept of of the universe in a different way or surprise and delight you with maybe a seahorse floating by when you're uh, uh, in another kind of environment, like a space environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's delightful, right? And um, so these things, they're, they're what you can enable in VR that you can't experience in the real world. Like I am, you know, in a hotel room right now speaking to you. I'm uh, uh, in Austin, Texas, and if this were a trip environment, it would start to change into another universe, and there might it might start with a seahorse or two kind of uh, swimming I remember that by one. me yep. in my yep. hotel room. <laughs> Do you know that's how we think about it? <laughs> it's it's uh, it's wonderful. I do remember the seahorse. There are lots of really interesting details that are in these realms. I think I was doing one yesterday where I was perched at the edge of a cliff and uh, looking down onto a, a beautiful valley. And then uh, all I noticed to my right, there was a beam of light that was going up into the sky from a rock. And then I noticed that in the vista, in the distance, there were uh, like several other beams of light that were going up. And it, for some reason, I just metaphorically in my mind, I started thinking about connections to other people and how it, you feel like feel like you're alone. But then, you know, if you can look for, you know, evidence that there are other people out there similarly minded or have, oh, how wonderful. You know, going through similar problems. So it just is like these interesting prompts that stimulate really, uh, you know, some some uh, inner dialogue that I, I wouldn't otherwise have. So congratulations. So Matt, you just gave me a great product idea because we know when other people are experiencing trip at the same moment, we could actually make those beams of light um, uh, indicate more of a communal shared experience. Uh, yeah, just in like, combination with Evolver, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And so that, again, like it's a wonderful ecosystem to explore. And when you have this overlay of, 
how will this make someone feel, which is something our entire team focuses on rather than, oh, this would be really cool or, or you know, uh, uh, this is my artistic vision. Really just to normalize on how will this make someone feel, it really allows us to be conscientiously thinking about impact and contribution all throughout our work. And that, um, that has created a, a really exciting work environment, I think, for all of us at TRIP. I bet. I mean, I, I think that a critique of many meditation apps is that they're focused on relaxation, as, as you've talked about. And many of the meditation gurus of the world say that the true goal of meditation is cultivating mindfulness, which obviously, you know, it involves accepting psychological pain on, on some level and even embracing that pain. Uh, like I talked to Sam Harris for an article last year, and he told me, you know, calm and headspace are nice for relaxation, but they're distracting users in some way from pursuing the much deeper and more beneficial goals of, of mindfulness. So I, I think that you are really hacking mindfulness. Uh, I think you, maybe, I think you've used that term in the past, right? I have. And, uh, I love Sam. The one meditation app I do use, uh, on mobile is, uh, uh, the waking up app. Uh, he has a, a practice that's very much my own type of practice. And, I re- oh, I had a really amazing early experience when we had built the first prototype of Trip. I had the great opportunity to share it with Jack Cornfield, who's an amazing meditation teacher. And he was so generous with his feedback. He spent several hours with me. And he's actually the one who gave me the idea to add a teaching in the tunnel, because our the first prototype, there it was just the mini game to focus your attention and sort of the breathing, but we didn't have any kind of guided meditation audio content. We were just focusing on experiential sound frequencies. And he said, she got me into such a receptive state that, you know, it would be wonderful to give me something to take away into the rest of my day. And I said, oh, we can change it every day. And uh, but what one of the things he pointed out was he said, look, when people start meditating, they always approach it from, as you said, Matt, the, you know, how do I become more relaxed? How do I become more focused? But what happens as a byproduct of that is you become more self-aware. And in that self-awareness, there can be a lot of pain because we start to realize how unkind we are to ourselves or, uh, and, or maybe even to others as a result. And that can create sadness, it can create depression and anger. And how do you support people through that process? And I think Sam Harris's app does a really good job of that. I think what we're seeing the Evolver community enable with, you know, trained session leaders and facilitators who can support people through their meditation practice, you know, especially if they're regular attenders, um, I think, you know, it it kind of fills that gap. But it it definitely can be painful to become self-aware. But it's a gateway to, to supporting yourself once you have that information. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the waking up app because I, I use that as well. And it's taught me an incredible amount about meditation. And um, it's just so valuable to have these tools 
in my living room, uh, <laughs> you know, trip and I have Sam Harris's voice in my ear. Uh, oh, yeah. I love that you do both. That, that makes me feel very honored because I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And in that app, they will encourage you to open your eyes. He encourages you to open your eyes throughout the meditation. Yeah. Uh, definitely. you know, but of course everyone should meet themselves exactly where they're at. And that is all part of that. You know, our mission for gamifying meditation, if you want to put it, you know, you see people, they kind of come up with this mindfulness score or resiliency score. And sometimes I call a lot of that uh, gamification, lamification, because it can, in, in the mental health and wellness space, it can actually backfire and make you feel worse because you're not in some optimal state of being. And, um, you know, how can we get people to feel more self-accepting and really just starting with how am I feeling right now in this moment and sitting with that without writing a story about it, without attaching to the emotion of it or any, um, memories that might even be produced or triggered by it, but just to be present. It's a huge um, shift in our emotional wellness, you know, when we can do that. Yeah, there, there definitely are drawbacks to the measured self movement and feeling like everything has value only in its outputs and its metrics. And it, it does kind of just rob one of the present moment if you're constantly thinking about how that moment is going to be evaluated through some number uh, that is, you know, supposedly going to validate its worth to you. Um, but uh, I, I'm really honored, Nenea, that you've spent so much time with me. I'm uh, grateful for, for over an hour. I, I do have one more question I, I was really curious to ask you. I love the artistry of trip as i've mentioned both the music and visual elements are stunningly beautiful and i wondered if you could talk about the collection of artists you've chosen to work with but uh, so that would be great i also wondered if you could talk about one experience specific experience in trip that you've personally found really moving and beautiful um and and sort of the the music and visual elements that combined to make that trip experience so meaningful to you? I'll start with the last question first, which is there's one feature in trip that, you know, because I, whenever I do it, I'm always looking at, oh, this could be better and that could be better. And, you know, I, I see the sausage making, right? <laughs> and but at the end of the focus trip where I have my own personal images uploaded into those balls, internally we call them the amaze balls. And uh, if for, for your listeners who haven't tried trip, our mobile app allows you to upload your images into, our, uh, into these balls. And they randomly appear. And if you have a lot of images uploaded, like more than 20, you never know which group are going to appear at the end of this seven or eight minute experience. And whenever I get to that uh, section and I see like an image of my life with my husband or the smiling little 
face of my dog or, you know, my sister who I lost or even some moment of happiness or even sadness in my life that I've uploaded, it just really makes me feel connected to my own life journey and the people I care about and the things I that are important to me, not, not physical things, but, you know, the experiences that have, I feel, defined my life. And, I, and it never fails to drive that deeper connection. Um, and so that, that feature, I think, is kind of a, a foundational element that we need to build out and scale more because I know that our users who have uploaded their own images um, are, are most um, engaged and active and supportive users of trip um, throughout and I think it's because they're having that same experience that I have the um, uh, approach that we've taken as a company is we you could think of us right now more like Netflix for these transformative experiences we create our own content our focus and calm trip and you're going to see some really cool new ones coming out a new one called drift that helps you prepare for sleep better and then we have a, another one called Transcend that will allow us to bring in uh, more teachings from other um, uh, practices that um, uh, will, you know, just be visualized in a way that is really cool. And um, those two are forthcoming in the next few months. And uh, But then we also work with... Um, creators who have built experiences that maybe they don't have enough content to have their own apps, but they want to have impact with that experience. And we've worked with them to distribute their experiences as well as collaborated with them to build our um, new experiences. One of those is uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who has created the Cosmic Flow experience in our catalog. And uh, he's now the core developer on our, our Drift experience, which we're very excited about. And um, so one thing I would say, if there are creators out there who are like-minded and want to work with Trip, you know, to um, reach out to us, we'd love to help you uh, uh, in especially if it's something that it, you think is beneficial to people that's exactly the type of content that we want to help enable to be created as well as to get out into the world in a bigger way and um, uh, we worked with t talented sound designers Justin Beretta and Matt Davis from Superposition Justin is also a founding member of the Glitch Mob. They created our foundational sound frequencies and, and music stems, and they're um, uh, it uniquely implemented in the way that they there's like a procedural engine that does a unique composition with every session. Um, you know, it's, it's slightly varied, and um, uh, David Starfire who's very well known in the global base um, 
uh, community in trance. He's now our new head of music and sound. And we've worked with wonderful NFT artists now to expand our mobile application and um, uh, help create like visuals to help you on the go that um, you can focus on eyes open while you're listening to audio content and sound frequencies that we're adding to our mobile application. And so it's just been wonderful to kind of create the channel for not only our own internal artists and sound designers, but also, you know, to be able to collaborate and partner with others on getting their content out to people like you and uh, our our community uh, to share with them. Yeah, so much to be excited about. I didn't realize that uh, the different um, those initiatives that you mentioned. I, I I guess I'll just I'll put in a plug for a trip soundtrack that I could listen to. I think that would be that's what I, that's one of the things I'm waiting for. Is I, I find the music so. Uh, it's such a great curation of meditation music. Uh, you know, of course, it's better with the the actual VR uh, realms, but uh, I think there would be value to just the having the audio available sometimes. Um, I also wanted to. You will. Oh, okay. yeah. It. It. I don't know when this podcast will air, but imminently we're launching first on iOS on iPhones, or an update to our mobile app, and it'll be free for a limited time to users. It's got all of our music and other wonderful creators as well as beautiful visuals to focus on. And we will have the Android version out shortly thereafter. Wow. Okay. That's that's wonderful. Uh, I'll definitely use that. I also wanted to put in a plug for, so I'm writing an article right now about virtual reality reminiscence therapy. Oh. And when you were talking about uploading images, yep. uh, it, that's like a big thing right now in senior living communities where people who work at these communities, there are software they can work with, where family members of people who are beginning to suffer some of the early signs of dementia can upload images and virtual reality videos into a platform. And the older people can use those videos in virtual reality that the communities have headsets that they can use. And the act of reminiscing is so enjoyable for older people who are, you know, having some of these MCI cognitive issues. And uh, so there is real therapeutic value. We saw that with Phil and Ron, the two very first home users I shared with you. They would upload images um well, we initially scraped their Facebook pages <laughs> and then uh, and uploaded them for them. Um, but to see themselves healthy while they were in failing health had a tremendous impact on their sense of um, well-being. And it, because, you know, sometimes when we're struggling, I saw this with my husband as well, you tend to think that you are your illness in many ways and um, uh, to be reminded that, you know, who you truly are and what you've experienced in life, you know, can drive a, a, a deeper connection um, to the whole journey, not just the one that you're currently going through. And then, you know, it was interesting as we started to notice too that caregivers, you know, people who cared about them were also going into the experience. So 
Yeah, that that I think, you know, is a whole area of support to expand into. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, Matt, it's been a, a joy to build this thing. It's been wonderful to connect with people like yourselves who've actually used the product. And thank you for supporting us. Uh, as an early stage company, it meant the world to us to have active users. And now as we grow and expand, um, uh, you know, the advocacy that we see from our own community itself is very moving. And it was, you know, my dream come true from that moment, you know? Yeah, that's, that's, that's inspiring. And I'm definitely looking forward to transcend and uh, maybe especially drift as I drift, struggle with yeah. the, the time, the time change. Uh, maybe by the next uh, fallback, uh, <laughs> I can use drift to help me adjust to the time change. Uh, Nenea, thanks so much for giving me the chance to share your story and your work with our listeners. It's been a real pleasure, incredibly interesting. I'm sure that you've got a very bright future with Trip, uh, and I'm looking forward to continuing to use it. I'm fascinated to see how your work continues to evolve and how Trip continues to get more and more traction because I think it's going to bring a lot of enjoyment and well-being into people's lives. So thank you again. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.